Amen. Thank you so much for that. Thank you to all our musicians. We're so grateful for you and grateful to you. We want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you haven't been with us, we've been working our way through this book from the back to the beginning. And so this morning we're at the beginning. We've come to Paul's portion of this chapter where he addresses the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the centerpiece of Easter, the centerpiece of the Christian faith. Every day, everybody gets up and begins consciously or subconsciously to try to decide and define in their own thinking for decision-making process what's most important. What's really most important? We have our Christian answers to that, and that's what we want to consider this morning. Paul, uh, when he finishes, what he does leaves no doubt about what is most important. Paul has written in this letter about all kinds of subjects. It's a great epistle to give guidance for Christian living to individuals, which is how you become a mature Christian. It's a great document for the church. How do you do church? How can the church best glorify Christ? And having written through 14 major chapters on all those subjects, he comes down to chapter 15 and he directs attention on the resurrection. And we've seen week by week over the last month or so, uh, there is the resurrection of the dead, which indicates to us the afterlife and all that's involved in Christian salvation. And there's the, the narrower discussion of the resurrection of Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you which you also received, in which also you stand. <clears throat> this is the gospel or the good news. And he says, I make that known to you. Now, he's been making that known for 14 chapters one way or another. But he says, and, and all I'm doing and all I do and all I am, I'm making known to you the good news, which I preached to you when there, which you received, you also received it, and you have come to stand also in that. <clears throat> he uses a different kind of verb in the, the, the four verbs in that verse, and the, the last one's different. It's one of those past tense verbs with enduring significance. You have come to stand in this. It's not just that you believed it when you received it. You stand in it. It is who you are. Now, may that be true of us this morning also. And were Paul to write uh, First Dublin, uh, a letter back to our community or to our church, might it be true that he would say, you have stood in this, you stand for this. If that's not really your testimony this morning, it needs to be, and it can be, and there's nothing between you and God that can make that not happen. You can have that as your own testimony today, that you stand in that gospel. Oh, may that be true for us all today. May we all, even those who have been Christians for many years, may we renew that on this Easter and say, yes, this is what I stand for. This is where I live. This is where I camp. This is where I make my decisions. This is the platform from which I live, from which I minister. This is who I am. He says, by which you were saved. You are also saved by that gospel. And he uh, says that's the process. It's not that you save yourself. 
It's that you are saved, that God delivers you powerfully through the redemptive work of Christ. He says, if you hold fast to that word which I preached, if you are, are focused in on that irreversibly, profoundly, with all of your heart, you're saved by that. Not because of your works, but because of his works. And you reach out and by faith, you trust that. He says, unless perhaps you believed in vain, that means uh, unless your, your belief was something short of what it was supposed to be, it doesn't mean that uh, it kind of ran out of steam or you washed out or you were committed and then you became uncommitted and you washed away from the faith. He says, no, unless you, uh, your belief, when you made a profession of faith, was something empty and, and not genuine. Assuming that it is, then you're saved by that gospel. Saved from lostness to life, from darkness to light, from the here and now to the eternal presence of God. You are saved in Christ by grace through faith are you saved, he wrote to the Ephesians. Now verse 3 is the, 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 the best verse of the, the passage. We're going through eight verses this morning, and if you could only have one verse, uh, verse 3 is probably the, the keeper for the morning. Keep it all, but especially this one. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he's going to go into uh, a creed. Uh, I grew up in a church where they said the Apostles' Creed every Sunday morning. Maybe some of you had that kind of experience. Um, or you've been around creeds or just brief doctrinal statements. And Paul writes a short doctrinal statement for us here in these next few verses. That which you could memorize and repeat in your head and incorporate into your heart uh, as a guiding document of Christian theology. And Paul says, you want to know what's most important? This is what's important. This is what's most important. I delivered this to you as in first place or as of most importance. So what Paul's about to say to us in these verses are far more important than anything else in your life. That's a pretty strong claim, isn't it? You think of all the things that are important to you, all the people that are important to you, nothing rivals what Paul talks about in these next few verses. So if you don't have a handle on this, this would be a great morning to get a handle on this and come to a clear understanding in your head and a commitment in your heart concerning what he has to say. I delivered to you as of first importance in first place. First place with no second and third place. That which I also received. He says the same thing about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. uses the same language there. That which I received, that God has revealed to me, I have delivered to you in first place. <clears throat> Several things. First of all, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died. We all know that. The centerpiece of the Christian faith, we would say on Easter Sunday, is the empty tomb. It's really the empty cross and the empty tomb. The finished work of the cross of Christ and the glorious empty tomb that certifies it. I delivered that to you, Paul says, as more important than anything else you could ever know. 
It's amazing what we know about so many things and the things that we uh, get excited about and memorize and learn. This is the most important thing in all of life to know that Christ died for your sins. He did so according to the scriptures. A year ago on Easter Sunday, I uh, gave you a message. I stole or borrowed better, better. I borrowed John Owen's title from 400 years ago. John Owen was a great theologian during the English Civil War, and he wrote all those theology books, but he wrote uh, concerning the death of Christ. He, he, his message was the death of death in the death of Christ. You may remember that title. The death of death in the death of Christ. When Christ died, he died for you. When Christ died, your death died. You may someday physically die. Most of us will, unless Jesus comes uh, that will be what you will experience. But the sting of your death, the finality of your death, the, the horror of death is list, lifted from you because Christ died before you and in your place and profoundly. And Paul says, this is what you got to know more than anything else. Christ died for your sins. And you got to know it in your head Probably everybody, you know, all across America, people kind of have a general notion uh, that Jesus died on a cross and somehow that was in people's place or something like that. And now Paul says, I want you to know he died in your place, not for sin in general, but for your sin. Christ died for that. And he did so according to the scriptures. <clears throat> the scriptures, when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, Probably Galatians and James and First and Second Thessalonians had been written. And probably nothing else that's in the New Testament has been written by that time. So Paul's not talking about uh, a lot of other passages. Maybe Romans has been written. But when you talk about the scriptures in Paul's writings, usually he's referring to the Old Testament. He's saying all those scriptures uh, that have been around for hundreds of years that are part of the, we would call it the Old Testament faith, the Jewish heritage that comes to the Christian faith, he says all of that is uh, punctuated in the ministry of Jesus. He is the climax of that. He is the centerpiece of all that Old Testament theology. It all comes down to him. And Jesus comes not as a random accident in the timeline of history. And you and I must understand that. It's not just something that just happened or Jesus came and he was going to be a great teacher and it got out of control and somebody killed him. He came on purpose and he came to die and he came purposely to die. Uh, there are a number of passages from the scriptures, from the Old Testament that Paul could have specifically quoted or referred to here, but he, he takes it as a big picture. The, the whole of the scriptures all the way down to Malachi are aiming at what Jesus did for us. The greatest of them probably is Isaiah 53 that you hear often on Easter or other settings. And Isaiah writes his great scroll about 700 years before Jesus, way, way, way before the time of Christ. And there's no way to take it as applying to anything other than the Messiah. Others have tried other ways to interpret Isaiah. There's no way around it. And he says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. 
Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions by the nails that held him to the cross, by the soldier's spear that pierced his side. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on him. By his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's Good Friday. That's Jesus on the cross for you on purpose. According to the scriptures, Jesus died for your sins. According to the scripture, Jesus fulfilled everything that would need to be accomplished for you to enter into Christian salvation. And Paul continues his creedal statement here. He says, and then he was buried. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took his body and prepared him and pushed him into Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, the unused tomb of the the garden that was back behind Calvary. And there Jesus was buried from Friday till Sunday morning. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Again, Paul says, I've got biblical background. I've got foundation for this. And that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas or Kepha is the Aramaic name for Peter. Uh, You've got all these different languages circulating in the biblical zone in the New Testament age. Uh, And he's uh, Petros or Peter, which is Greek. He's also Kepha, which is the Aramaic name Cephas in English. He appeared to Cephas. And then to the 12, by the time he appears to the 12, Judas Iscariot is gone. He's not a part of it. But the 12 is a a, a title for the group collectively. They were known as the 12 and they're still known as the 12. So he doesn't say the 12 except for the one. He just says the the 12. He, He comes to Peter and then to the disciples. And after that, he'd appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. You say, well, where did that happen? And you look through the book of Acts and you look through the Gospels and you're looking for uh, some clue and it doesn't really tell us. Let me tell you what I think Paul's referring to there. What I think happened in verse 6. Jesus told the disciples after he was raised on the third day, they were to meet him in Galilee. Now, Galilee's a big area. That's like meet me in Georgia. If I was in Zambia or Korea or someplace and I was with friends or family and I said I'll see you in Georgia and then you might say well where in Georgia Gainesville or Valdosta or where are you talking about you would know that I meant Dublin because that's home that was the particular spot where life had been lived out and when Jesus speaks of uh, Galilee to them he has a particular place in mind it's a remarkable place it goes by the name Tabga today or Heptapagon the place of seven springs it's the place where Jesus called the fishermen disciples James and John and Peter and Andrew and Philip came off the boats there at that location it's there that he fed the 5,000 it's there that he he preached the sermon on the mount and there in that remarkable location John 20 and 21 describe his Galilean experience with them by the water edge in that same place where they started. In Matthew 28, we have 
uh, the Great Commission of Jesus, where he commissions us to take the gospel to the nations. And it says in Matthew that he took them to the mount. And I think that's that same mount where years before he had preached the sermon on the mount. It's got a definite article, the, the mount, the mound, the, the rise there. And Matthew says, uh, and it usually gets translated something like to the place he had appointed for them to go to or something to that effect. I think the intent of what Matthew is saying is uh, to the place where they had been appointed where they had been called as disciples. And he comes back and he meets with them. And when he meets with the 12, uh, minus Judas uh, and, and others that are with him, the crowd, I think, reassembles. And I think that 500 includes many of the people that sat there in that same place and listened to the Sermon on the Mount three years before. And now they see Jesus crucified, buried, and risen. Once again, alive in their presence, victorious over the grave. He says he appeared to 500 brethren at one time. Most of them remain until now, Paul says. This is about 25 years after those experiences, uh, since the, the resurrection of Jesus. And most of those people that saw all that and witnessed the resurrection, Paul says they're still out there. Now, that's a long ways from Corinth in those days, wouldn't take us very long, a couple hours on the airplane, you could get over there. But back then, it was a long ways off. But he says, if you wanted to go over there, if you could make your way to Galilee and begin to interview people, you'd find lots of them. Most of that crowd of 500 could say, yeah, we saw him. We saw him right here, risen. We saw the evidence of the crucifixion, but we saw him alive. And he talked to us and he taught us again. He says, but some have fallen asleep. And we've seen Paul use that expression elsewhere, <clears throat> euphemism for death. Uh, but it, uh, it's a way of describing death that takes away the finality and the sting of death. He says, some of those witnesses are gone, but there's still hundreds of them over there. This is not something done in secret. There are lots and lots and lots of witnesses that could tell you that Jesus was risen from the dead. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. There are several Jameses in the and the 12, there are two men named James, and this James is probably neither one of those. One is the brother of John, and there's James the less he's usually referred to. Uh, this is the James who gives us the letter of James in the New Testament. He's a half-brother of Jesus. We take him to be a son born to Joseph and Mary after the birth of Jesus. Uh, his role during the... Uh, life of Jesus is unclear, but, but Paul says he appeared to James. And what happens to James after that is profound. He is not only a contributor to the New Testament, he becomes the senior pastor of First Baptist Jerusalem. Well, uh, maybe they weren't Baptists. First Baptistic Church of Jerusalem. But he is the, the presiding elder and pastor when the Jerusalem Council happens in Acts 15. And Barnabas and Paul and Peter all bear witness to what God has done among the Gentiles, and they do so with James sitting there presiding. James becomes a great leader of the church. Wouldn't it be exciting? Oh, there's so much missing in the Bible. We've got all we need, I know. I don't question that. But wouldn't it be great to have more 
and to have some video and be able to maybe in heaven someday. <clears throat> but to see Jesus meeting with James, imagine Jesus coming up to James, brother, let me, let me just hug you and, and tell you I love you. And, um, and they would, could have reflected on the memories of growing up in that household together. Imagine Jesus is your big brother. How incredible that would be. Just the, the, a blessing every day. No quarreling, no, no issues with big brother Jesus. James had that kind of brother. I don't know what James was like growing up, but Jesus was perfect. And he encourages James and says, James, my little brother, you now will be a profound leader for the cause of Christ. <clears throat> Seeing me risen, <clears throat> you will now tell others about me and you will take this message to the nations. And James did. And then Paul just says, and, and then to all the apostles, just to, to all of them in general. And last of all, Paul says, <clears throat> and this is chronologically, after all those things that occurred, it's last to Paul. But Paul writes it in a way, uh, and we'll look at this in another message. Uh, Paul writes it as if to put himself in last place in more than just a chronological timeline. He says, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Last of all, in last place, I, Paul says it with humility, and it's not a superficial, phony kind of humility, but he says, just putting myself last of all, he appeared to me. <clears throat> we read about it in Acts chapter 9, the incredible conversion <clears throat> of the apostle Paul, rated by one news magazine uh, years back, secular news magazine, as uh, the most important defining moment of the last 2,000 years, which is saying a lot, isn't it? But Paul was gloriously converted when Jesus appeared to him, the risen Jesus, in a fashion that the others had not seen. And he sees the, the glory of the risen Christ. And it changed him so dramatically it's immeasurable. And Paul says, I was changed as one uh, abnormally born, the NIV has it, or one born out of due time, the King James has it, or untimely born, the timing was out of sync. I wasn't part of the 12. I wasn't part of the usual, but Jesus touched my life and he changed me with the message. And Paul says to the Corinthians, and Paul says by means of scripture to you and me today, this is the most important thing. Of everything there is for you to know, and there's a lot for you to know and that you can learn and be aware of. But of all that you know in your head and in your heart, this is the most important thing. Do not go home this morning without Jesus. Do not go through the coming week without Jesus. Don't proceed planning and strategizing your life and making arrangements for the future without being aware that Christ died in your place according to the scriptures, that you might be saved by him. Don't attempt life without that. It will not work very well for very long. Without Christ, we are nothing. And Paul says later in the chapter that we've looked at on a previous Sunday, if none of this is true, then we're, we're pitiful, is what he said. We're to be pitied because we're just religious folks with nothing that has any anchor to it. But if Christ has been raised from the dead... Everything that's before us is changed and it deserves our full attention and the 100% commitment of our hearts. 
That's what you're called to by the scriptures, by the apostle Paul, by the gospel this morning. Bow with me in prayer, please. Father, we're grateful this morning uh, that there is no doubt about what's most important. And Father, we're grateful uh, for the victory we have in Jesus Christ. We're grateful that Jesus came and lived perfectly and taught perfectly. It was a blessing and encouragement to all those who crossed his path. We're grateful for that. We're grateful for the cross and the finished work of the cross and that every sin we have ever committed or ever will commit was dealt with on that cross, that now empty cross, the finished work of the cross accomplished our redemption and we're grateful for that and we're grateful for that glorious third day as the sun came up on Jerusalem that morning Jesus was no longer in that tomb we're grateful that that changed not only his being and the lives of the 12 it changes us and so we pray that as we go on to Sunday school and out back to our homes and on with our lives that we'll be shaped and molded and encouraged and blessed and cause to rejoice because our Savior has risen, and we do pray in his name. Amen.